Hi, Andy. Uh, welcome to the new show. Yeah, we're off to a good start. Uh, we're in the top 10 charts last week, which was very exciting. And so thank you to all of our listeners for making that happen. I agree. Uh, thank you to everyone following the show. In this episode, Andy, you talk with Janice Frazier about her four leadership motions. Yeah, I really enjoyed this conversation. As a leader, I take a lot away from uh, conversations where you can think about durable decisions and sort of how do you think about um, decision-making processes overall. Yes, I, I think the listeners will find this episode insightful, which reminds me, why did the insight go to therapy? Uh, I, I think I'm nervous to ask. I don't know why. Because it had a lot of unresolved aha moments. <laughs> We're going to need a snare drum. All right. uh, we should, I should probably test this. I think they're all funny. So good. All right. But that might be a problem. Let's, uh, let's keep going. Let's keep going. Welcome to Insights Unlocked, an original podcast from User Testing, where we bring you candid conversations and stories with the thinkers, doers, and builders behind some of the most successful digital products and experiences in the world, from concept to execution. Welcome to the show. I'm Nathan Isaacs, Senior Manager of Content Production at User Testing. Our guest host today is Andy McMillan, User Testing's CEO. Uh, welcome, Andy. Hey, everyone. And for today's episode, we are honored to have Janice Frazier joining us. Janice is an OG in the tech world, uh, in UX and in innovation. She's been a product leader, founder of four companies, or is it four or six? Six companies, I believe, It's actually right? six. Six companies, facilitator, advisor to both startup entrepreneurs and enterprise executives, She's an investor, speaker, and expert in emerging management practices to support innovation at scale. She's consulted NASA, the Obama White House, Procter & Gamble, and many other Fortune 500 companies. She was also founding partner of Adaptive Path. And for you in the uh, UX space, you know that's one of the uh, original uh, UX consultancies. And she is an author. With her husband, Jason, she is co-author of the recently published Farther Faster and Far Less Drama. Welcome to the show, Janice. Thank you so much for having me. This should be really fun. I'm looking forward to this, Janice. The, um, the whole concept of the book is fascinating to me as somebody who's worked in uh, a whole bunch of tech companies and, and made product decisions and tried to get alignment. So I think it'll be, uh, it'll be really interesting. I am, and I'm really excited. I was, I was so pleased to see the video clips that, um, that you sent early on. I think that we're going to have a great conversation. And speaking of that, uh, today uh, we're going to talk about making right decisions with the right stakeholders, and if such a thing is even possible. To tee up <laughs> our conversation, we've reached out to technology professionals within User Testing's Global Contributor Network to share their thoughts about how decisions are made in their organizations. And here's what they said. Uh, my experience, I've got 10 years in the tech industry. I actually found uh, what might be a surprise is that the SME size took forever to make a decision. Uh, I have to be on the, the side for, for the big guys, um, unfortunately, when it comes to making decisions. It's times where I've been in meetings where um, it's like, why is this person there? Why is that person there? And there's been times where I've had meetings that I needed a certain stakeholder there and they didn't show up because they have two million meetings going on, right? So do decisions have to be right or could they be right enough to keep going in the right direction where your thoughts, oh, definitely could be right enough. Like I, I have a big problem with people waiting too long to make a decision. Like I think you do need to collect a lot of information and be deliberate about 
decisions, especially big ones, but you could also equivocate forever and you're never going to have perfect information. And in the meantime, some information you've collected will have changed. So I think you do have to decide where your right enough threshold is. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the agile project management perspective, um, you know, you get a, a, an MVP, a minimal viable product uh, that you agree with the client that would be okay to release at a certain time that everybody's agreed on. So um, yes, they can absolutely be right enough. Software is always going to have bugs in it. There's always going to be situations, but you need to get enough of an improvement to show progress towards your goal because you keep moving the goalpost, nothing's ever going to get done. All right, so Janice, I thought that was pretty interesting. I mean, I've worked in a lot of tech companies, as I said before. Um, I thought the feedback was... Uh, I know I felt it when I heard people talking. I'm like, I relate to the, <laughs> I relate to these points. Uh, but what impressions did you have after watching the video? Well, I had the same experience. Like, I really like I, I felt those pains very personally, very, um, very, very empathetically. Um, you know, there are too many opinions, or it took too long, or it was made too fast. Um, you know. I I think that these are really common descriptions. And so I work across a very wide variety of contexts. You know, you mentioned some of the government work that I've done. I've also done like mom and pop shop type level work, but I was, you know, kind of grew up in the Silicon Valley tech startup scene. And what I see is that those problems that they described are actually universal problems. Like um, when my son was in kindergarten, the school that he went to did not have a PTA, Right. And so I had to start the PTA. And so there I am with all of these parents. And I'm not a PTA mom type. Like I'm, you know, I'm much more comfortable with Silicon Valley, like, you know, kind of hard-nosed whatever folks. And um, and the same problems emerge. Too many people or not enough people or people aren't paying enough attention or they commit and then drop out. Like all of those problems that we heard, those are just human collective decision-making problems. And so they sort of are consistent in every context I've um, that I've experienced. And I, I, I think that we've figured out a couple of things that might help. Um, so I'm looking forward to talking to talking about that. Yeah. I, uh, I really enjoyed uh, when one of the folks talked about how it actually, it's the larger organizations they worked in. They felt like they made decisions faster. And I felt like that was a little bit sort of challenging maybe some assumptions that people have about small organizations always go faster. And to your point, it's it's not really a size of organization problem. It can maybe be a human nature problem and other things. And um, I also think you can sort of sometimes in larger organizations feel like you're getting clear on who's making these decisions versus sometimes in smaller groups, it feels like everybody should have an opinion. And so I thought that was really illuminating and sort of to me was like, yeah, that's true. I've worked in some really big teams that have been good at decision making or at least better at it. I've worked in really small teams that have have been bad at it and things like that. So I thought that was, I really enjoyed that um, perspective that was shared. Um, so let's talk about the book a little bit, because it really does get sure. to these these issues. And, and so, um, you know, you divide the book into what you call the four motions. And so I want to take a little bit of time and talk about sort of what those are and how you think about that. The, the four motions are um, orient honestly <laughs> to value outcomes, leverage the brains, and make durable decisions. And so, yep. you know, using that framework, uh, or maybe you tell us a little bit about that framework, how should a team or a leader sort of set out to make better decisions? That's a great question. Um, so the four leadership motions came about because we um, have for a long time, so my husband and I had a startup together, right? So there was this moment in 2010, 2014, 
where we were running sort of, it was an early accelerator type program for early stage companies. So to your point about big versus small, not necessarily being a determining factor on whether your decision-making is effective and fast and whatnot. Like, so we had 50 companies go through our program and it was specifically focused on product development for technology, right? So we had this like microcosm of 50 companies. And so we, and they would come to our studio one day a week for 10 weeks, right? And we did five at a time. So we did all these different cohorts and we just kept watching and trying to figure out how to get them to make better decisions faster um, and how to make a decision to make decisions reliably good enough to be effective, right? Like, so, and so that context was like a crucible for figuring out some of these things. And so the four leadership motions is like everything we learned there, everything I learned from Adaptive Path, everything I've learned for the last 20 years distilled down into like, what are practical, useful things that any leader could do in any situation to go faster, get there farther. And my favorite is like, I'm I'm all full up with drama. So let's just like low, let's just reduce that, right? So, you know, I always hear, you know, my large company clients say, like, can we go farther? Can we get there faster? Can we go faster? Right. And so so that that's the the origin of the four leadership motions is like, what are simple things that anybody could do in any context? So and obviously they're simple, but there's a lot of nuance in there, like when you when you tap into it. And each of the motions can be um, used independently in any order. And you could just like, you could, you know, spin the dial and it lands on orient honestly. And you're like, how could I get more clear and truthful about what's complicated in this moment? Right. Yeah. That, and that would help you. Any leader would be helped by getting very clear on that. So. When it comes to decision making, um, there are a couple of things. And I think of this like everything that those folks said really come down to like they want efficiency, but they want it to be efficiency that is effective. And I call that durable decision making. Like I think like durable, like a pair of Carhartt's pants, you know, like you might have to like, you know, do a bunch of work, automotive work on your car this weekend, but you're going to be able to wash those pants and they're going to be fine the next day, yep. right? Decisions, when we make decisions, we lose time before a decision happens and after a decision happens. And so the before is about having maybe unrealistic standards. Like, is it the right decision? Is it the best decision? Like, I don't know, who who knows? Like, there's no way to know whether a decision is right or best. That is an unachievable standard. And then the other is a way that we lose time before a a decision is made is we try to include everybody, right? We try to aim for consensus. And so there's one person in the video that talked about really liking it when like the person above them just made a call. Like, and we talk about that as someone needs to be able to make a decision as a service to the team so that we can move forward. So it doesn't always have to be that top dog, you know, uh, waterfalling a decision down. It could just be in this case, the user experience person is the right person to make that call. So would you please make a decision as a service to the team? Because there's we're not going to get any more information to know what is the right way. Yeah. So so for that set of problems, that before a decision is made set of problems, um, I look for a couple of things. Um, I want to change that standard. Like 
is this a good enough, is this a decision that will advance us toward the outcome that's important? So we say good enough, and it's like, what does good enough mean? Well, good enough means it is going to help us make real improvement toward our outcome, right? And then um, the second is, can we all live with it? Not, do we all agree? Not, do we have consensus that this is the right thing to do? We've already said right is not possible. So how can we, like, consensus is not necessary. What's necessary is, is this a decision that you can support? And when I say support, I mean commit to, like, actually putting effort behind it. Like, we don't know exactly what the right thing is. This one is pretty good. It's going to get us where we need to go. So we are all going to get behind it and move forward. So that's that's how I like to frame up that before decision making happens part. I think it's really interesting. I felt like, um, you know, looking over those four pieces, they really resonate with me as a leader. When I think about the decisions that my team goes through, um, how we can make those decisions better. Uh, I'll say the ones that really resonated with me as a combo was the idea of um, that, you know, valuing outcomes. The best conference to help brands launch the most compelling digital experiences returns. We hope to see you at our annual customer conference, the Human Insights Summit, when it takes over Seattle this August. Get a chance to learn from and network with the best minds in research, design, product, and marketing across the globe. More than 400 attendees will take over Seattle to learn, connect, and have fun. Join us for three days that will change how you use human insight to create exceptional customer experiences. Don't miss this 2023, live in person and streaming globally. Register at usertesting.com slash this. Uh, I'll say the ones that really resonated with me as a combo was the idea of um, that, you know, valuing outcomes, right? That like getting to that level of certainty is important but then the durability of that decision, right? Like we don't want to, what I don't want to do is value that we got to a decision only to then next week, like start over again, because we didn't yes. have any durability like that. And you hear that all the time. People are like, oh, we just, we revisit, we revisit, we can't like, you know, <laughs> and so I think this idea of like, you know, I, I do want to value the outcome. I want to, you know, have that sort of um, ability to get to a decision, which I think a lot of companies struggle with, but I think that if giving people skills and capabilities and frameworks to think about how to get to durable decisions, um, yeah, that really resonated. I, I think durable decision is a fantastic phrase. Like I just really like sometimes you read something like that just speaks to me like that. That <laughs> spoke to me like in my core. I'm like, yes, durable uh, decisions. So I, th well, I thought that I was really Can I tell you great. where? Yeah, you, please. The, there's one thing that really I learned early in my career and it just has stuck with me. And that's kind of what sort of was the the beginning of that dur that that durable decision you know, train of thought that I've maintained now for 25 years. So I, I was um, early at uh, Netscape. So I started working at Netscape. I started interviewing at Netscape right before the IPO, but then the hiring freeze happened. So it was six months later before I actually got the job. And so it's like January 1996, 100% of the web traffic is going through the front page of the Netscape website. I know it was, it was a crazy, crazy time. So when I started there, so fun fact, when I started there, there were two buildings and I left 18 months later and there were 35 buildings <laughs> down on Rengsdorf Road. Oh my gosh, yeah. It was, it was bananas. It was, it was bananas. Anyway, so Jim Barksdale was the CEO then and, you know, Jim Barksdale had done the whole turnaround of FedEx. I mean, he's a really great leader, really great leader. And I learned so much just from watching him. 
And he had this saying, he said, if you see a snake, kill it. Don't play with dead snakes. And is like his idea, his, what he was trying to convey to us is like, stop rethinking, stop second guessing yourself. You're just going to go in. There's a decision to make. It's going to be good enough to get us toward where we need to go. Unless there's new information that tells us that something else would be better. There is no reason to doubt that we were good in our choice, right? If you have new information, great. Revisit it, have another conversation. But if you don't have any new information, just keep moving. Yeah. So, that, that, so that's, it's Jim Barksdale. It's, yeah. a, great, it's a great phrase. Uh, <laughs> so I, I want to talk about something else that was um, we heard in, in one of the video clips that I think um, your book and your framework could, could help us think through. Um, in one of the clips, uh, there was a gentleman that talked about uh, the challenge. I hear people say this all the time of having, you know, the right or all the stakeholders sort mm -hmm. of in a meeting, right? And I think anybody yep. who's worked at an organization, any kind of size, any kind of like multiple departments has been down this road. Um, you suggest managing stakeholders is kind of a lost cause, right? So that yeah. you're not, you're not going to manage this cohort of people. Um, so what do you suggest people do instead of trying to manage mm -hmm. stakeholders? Yeah, it's that. It, so it's it's both words, and I know that wordsmithing can be you know a waste of time. But um, but the word manage and the word stakeholders, I think, are both problematic. Um, and here's what I do instead. Um, first, with stakeholders, it says that there's a bunch of people that have a stake in what we're doing. That's what we literally mean by stakeholders. And I would rather than think about managing people who have a stake, I would rather involve people in meaningful, real ways. Um, and I want to involve the right people. And by co-creating, I no longer have to manage. So managing implies that I'm going to keep some at arm's length. I'm going to hold others closer. I'm going to try and persuade everybody to, to buy in, is another word I hate, buy into this thing. It's all just way too vague and it presumes an us them kind of mentality. And that's not helpful for anyone. It's not helpful for me as part of the team. It's not helpful for them as people who are now excluded from the team. I would much rather invite three kinds of people to any decision. The people with the authority to say yes. The people with subject matter knowledge that are essential to making the right decision, again, right being the one that would move us forward toward our goal that we can all live with, right? Um, and then the third is the people who have to live with the outcome. So I want to talk about each one of those for a moment. The people who have the authority to say yes is different from the people who have the authority to say no. There are often a lot of people who can say no, but very few people who can say yes. One of the challenges, and this this is where decision making becomes fundamental to the culture that you have as a company. So getting the people who have the authority to say yes to believe that it is their responsibility to participate in a team that makes a good decision, right? Then you can set expectations for, you know, what data do they bring to the decision meeting? Is this a, is this a decision session or is it an exploratory session, right? So you can start to really refine um, how you use time together once you have that authority to say yes person agreeing to be a participant in the process. That's the one. The second kind of people, the subject matter experts, is what um, the gentleman on the video was talking about. Um, too many of them, right? 
So you say, who are the couple really important folks who have the real insight and can bring in and digest the, the wide range of subject matter expertise, right? So you involve just one or two people who can represent the knowledge needed to make an effective decision. And they have to have the expectation that their job is to represent that subject matter expertise, right? Whatever range that is. And then the third participant is often the one that's overlooked. And that's like my, my favorite example is like the customer service person who's going to have to field the calls um, and emails when you launch a feature that is terrible, yep. right? Yes. Like, right. Those frontline people are often really overlooked, but they have to live with the outcome of the decision. And so what you end up with, and and I really like small teams, no more than five people, right? Because more people takes way longer, like exponentially longer to make a decision. So it's like, if you convene that cross-functional team to to collect the information, identify the options, and make a decision, right? It can be efficient and well-informed enough to be durable. So, um, yeah, so that's, I, I, and and then you have the question of like, how do I disinvite people who think that they have a legitimate claim to be in that decision meeting and, and to potentially block a particular decision? Well, and the answer to that for me is, they probably legitimately have something important to contribute, right? They're not making it up. People don't just like show up because, you know, they don't have anything else to do. Um, so you give them real work to do that represents the actual value they will bring to that decision. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I like that a lot. I think um, I'm thinking about my leadership offsites and things that I do here, user testing. And one of the things that I try to communicate to my team is, you know, these are an opportunity to sort of get together and lay out what we're doing and get aligned. And it's an opportunity for people to give some input into that process. But what you're not doing is delegating the decisions that folks have to make in their roles because we, you know, we're not going to get together and put, you know, sticky notes on a whiteboard for an hour and redo our product strategy. Like we have people that own those decisions that do that for a living. And so they can get up and they can share what they're doing to your point of sort of having people participate. They can hear what we're doing and be aligned. They can say, hey, you know, have you thought about this or thought about that? But I want that that executive to then go own the decision, like take that as input. And then, yeah, they're responsible mm -hmm. for making sure if there's a few people that are stakeholders getting them together, but they're not responsible for letting everybody vote. It's not a consensus. We're not going to sort of like hold up a decision until everybody agrees. Well, somebody, you know, you've been heard, you've had your chance to have your input. And then, you know, somebody's got to make a decision to your point that's good enough that's going to get us to the next phase that so we can sort of have, you know, the ability to move on. Well, and I, I want to speak to that a little bit. I think you're absolutely right. And I think that this really speaks to um, trust and respect, right? So as as the senior leader in your organization, as the, you know, the chief dog, right, you've got a bunch of people who are together a comprehensive group of experts. Um, my, my friend um, David Kidder calls it like the jigsaw puzzle pieces. Yeah. And so whatever's in each person's piece, they need to have authority over and we need to trust and respect them we need, we're, we're showing respect by trusting them we can say like you know what i have serious reservations i am behind you 100 percent if this is the way you want to go but i'm also going to kind of maybe have a contingency if things go awry because i see i see risk here but i trust and i support you and that's what um lencioni patrick lencioni calls first team right 
We need to have that trust and respect for each other laterally so that when we make these decisions that feel a little bit risky to some of us, um, we're doing it because we respect each other. And, and that's what a functional team really does. I think that's a really important point. And I think it's, in some ways, not a lot of things get easier when you're CEO, but one of the things that does get easier <laughs> uh, is acknowledging that I'm not the expert in a lot of those areas. Like I came up in my career through the product management kind of side of the world. So like my CFO is a much better CFO than I will ever be. I've never done right. their job, right? My head of sales is a much better head of sales than I will ever be because I've never been a head of sales, right? And so right. what's one of the unique things about being CEO, I think, is you can pretty openly acknowledge uh, I'm supporting you, but your expertise and you're the one making some of these decisions. And my job is to make sure they align across the company and that we're all sort of going in a direction together. But I think that mindset could work for a lot of folks, even as you get just into your own organizations that you hire all yes. these folks. You know, you're right. You've got to empower them. You've got to trust them. You've got to build a decision-making you know, model that helps people trust that as well. And that's one of the things I really liked about your uh, four concepts is they really are sort of about how do you help people think about how to make better decisions. It's not about taking over those decisions. Um, it's not a complicated spreadsheet of who gets to vote on what and decide on what. It's this mindset of how to get to, you know, these these durable decisions that I thought was so great. Yeah, and I'll tell you, as a as a consultant and as a CEO myself, like I have made those convoluted spreadsheets with scoring and decision prioritization matrices and all that kind of stuff. And honestly, n- no amount of process will fix incorrect mindsets. Yep. Right. If your people on your leadership team don't trust each other, no spreadsheet is going to compensate for that. So I really, um, I, I really have. Maybe it's just because I'm getting older. Like I really think that process. I love process, but process will not save us. What will save us is mindset and respect and trust. And um, so there's there's a Harvard researcher, a Harvard Business School researcher, um, Linda Hill, who talks about creative abrasion. Like we need to have conflict, but it has to be a particular kind and tenor of conflict to to really like wrestle and push and pull hard decisions so that we get to clarity together and can, you know, feel really confident that we can. That's how you take risky, bold moves. Yeah. Yeah. You're only going to inch forward if you never disagree. I I really like that. I really like that. And I think you're right on the process piece as well. I I remember meeting a another CEO who told me about their board deck creation process. And it was 139 rows long and it was a big racy model. And the reason was, you'll love this, the reason was, well, they kept showing up and not being aligned in front of their board. And I, I remember telling them, like, I don't think you have a board deck creation problem. You have a problem that your team's unaligned and it's showing up in front of your <laughs> exactly. board. You know, it's like, you're, you're so I, I, you know, I think that the same with yeah. decisions, right? I think you're right. If you can't have an empowered team that you trust, to make decisions, then you don't have a decision-making yeah. framework problem. You have a, a team problem. And, but if you get that right team in place, then you can work on how to make better decisions. And I really like that. So Completely agree. Um, so oh, I, I, I want to make sure we do this before we go too, because I've really enjoyed the conversation and I'm sure our listeners will have as well. And I'm, I'm guessing some of them are probably like, okay, so where do I go if, if anybody wants to learn more about you or to order a copy of the book? Where would they go? How would they do that? Um, it's easy. JaniceFraser.com. And I'll spell it J-A-N-I-C-E-F-R-A-S-E-R.com. All right. It's like team. There is no I. There you go. <laughs> in Fraser. There is no I in Fraser. Yeah. I love it. That's perfect. It's perfect. Well, Janice, I have really like I've enjoyed the conversation. Um, I love the the four concepts for better decision making. I know I'm gonna put them to, to work 
um, here at user testing and, and in my life as, as well. Um, so thanks for spending some, some time with us today. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. It was such a pleasure. Want to keep the conversation going? You can find the show notes at usertesting.com slash podcast. If you haven't already, don't forget to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, or Google Play so you never miss an episode. And if you enjoyed today's show, please share it with a friend or leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And until next time, this is Insights Unlocked, an original podcast from User Testing.